We are in Luke 15. You've, you've heard tonight we, did, we didn't do an Old Testament passage tonight in the readings because the, uh, the parable is long enough and important enough, I think, in all its parts for us to have read through all of it. And so uh, what I'm going to do first is I want to read through it again and kind of talk a little bit as we read through it to kind of give a little more context and hopefully uh, maybe fill in some details for us. And then I, I want to talk through a story that you've all heard before, but I hope... Um, we hear anew tonight. Uh, again, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, uh, verses 11 through 32. This is a parable that's coming at the, at the end of a series of parables where Jesus talks about things that are lost and found. Uh, and this has uh, traditionally been called the parable of the prodigal son, although honestly, uh, that's a terrible name for the story, so we're not even going to call it that. Um, maybe the forgiving father or the gracious father or the, or the two sons or... I don't know what, but just the, it's not just about the prodigal son, so I think that's important. But let's go ahead and read through it, and I'm going to try and give you a little bit of context and some details to, to fill this picture out a little bit, and then we'll kind of take a 10,000-foot view at the world that Jesus is building here. It says this, Luke 15, uh, verses 11 through 32. Verse 11, then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided the property between them. That little context for the, the time we're living in here. A man has two sons. Sons inherit things from the father. Uh, daughters do not in this time. An older son would inherit twice as much as anyone else, right? So in this scenario with two sons, uh, if the father had died at the beginning of the story, the older son would get two-thirds of everything that the father had. The younger son would get one-third. Uh, in, in this particular story that Jesus is telling, um, the younger son says, hey, dad, let's pretend you're dead already. Doesn't say it that way, but that's functionally what's happening here. And it should feel like that kind of gut punch to the father to hear it from the son, right? That, this would have been an audacious, uh, cruel thing, really, to say to your father. Very disrespectful in an honor culture. Let's pretend you're dead. I want my one-third now. And perhaps the most miraculous part of the story is the father says yes and does it. Uh, I never asked my dad. I don't think he would say yes to it. But he does. Divides up his property, gets that one-third, and gives it to that younger son. Verse 13, a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So his younger son gets his one-third. He goes immediately out to a distant country. Uh, and as a good Jewish boy, this is not the decision you're supposed to make. He goes out uh, to a distant country. He leaves his father's home. Uh, he runs into what we all run into the first time we get our hands on some money, is that money runs out. And as soon as that money runs out, there's a famine. And the only job that he can find is feeding pigs. And this is intended to represent the worst possible job for a young Jewish man to have. Uh, as you may know about uh, the Jewish faith, they do not eat pigs. They do not own pigs. They consider them to be filthy animals. 
And so the idea that the only thing that this, one, this son who used to be a part of a household, uh, this Jewish son, the only thing he could do is feed some foreigners pigs, an animal he wouldn't have even eaten at his father's house. And uh, unsurprisingly, feeding pigs doesn't, doesn't uh, pay real well. And so he longs for the food, for the slop they're giving the pigs. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen what pigs eat. It's not appetizing. Things are bad. No one would give him any. There's no charity. There's nothing for him outside his father's house. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him. And let me stop at that for a moment. So he reaches the bottom of this. He begins to see the world for what it is outside of his father's house. He realizes, I have blown my shot at being my father's son. I've squandered everything that my dad built to give me his entire life. I've squandered it all. But my dad has hired servants that are living better than this, so I'm just going to go. I've blown my shot at being your son. I've sinned against heaven and against you, right? Hire me. Just let me, let me work for you. I will earn my bread. And while he was still far way off, his father saw him. So his father sees him coming, right? And his father knows what has happened when he sees him coming because he's coming back empty-handed. He knows he's wasted it all. He's at 0%. Oh, for everything. While he was still far away off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Maybe my favorite verse in the Bible. I don't know. He sees his son. He knows his son has wasted everything. What we see here is a glimpse at what Jesus' teaching is the heart of God. Here's what comes up naturally out of God's own heart when God sees one of his children having wasted everything. He's filled with compassion. He hikes up his tunic. This is something distinguished old men in that day did not do, and he runs. Neither of those things, those are both embarrassing activities for an old man in this culture. He runs. He puts his arms around him, rendering himself unclean because his son is coming back unclean. And with his arms around his son and his nose filled with the smell of pigs, he kisses them. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 21, then the son said to him, he starts his speech, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, notice he doesn't get to finish his speech that he rehearsed. He only gets halfway through it. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and it is found. And they began to celebrate. Doesn't let him finish. Doesn't let him even ask to be hired on. He is my son. He always has been my son. He always will be my son. Put the ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. That means they're throwing a rager. This is the best. Open up the best bottle we got that we've been waiting, right? My son was dead, now he's alive. 
doesn't make him clean up, doesn't make him go through his entire speech, doesn't make him, uh, you know, apologize, nothing. Throws a party. Verse 25, now the elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has gotten him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. Right? So the older son's out in the field. The older son is doing what you're supposed to do. Has it gone to a foreign country? Has it wasted everything on dissolute living, wine and women and everything else? None of that. Been doing what he's supposed to be doing. This is the good son. He comes back to the house. He hears the party going on that he apparently no one even bothered to invite him to because they just started the party. He finds out who it's for and he's angry. He learns of a party that's being thrown functionally on his dollar, right? The younger son already got his one-third. That means everything else should come to the older son when the time comes. He won't go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. Another embarrassing thing that an older man should not have done in this culture. You don't go outside your own house and plead with your son who's being a jerk. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave. That's a heavy, heavy phrase to say to your father. I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. I call bull on that, by the way. Never. Really? Never? Okay, maybe so. Maybe. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. That young goat that's like, uh, you know, you, you open up the best bottle of wine that's worth all that money, you never even gave my friends and I a Bud Light, right? And that's the kind of thing that's going on. Never even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. See, the elder son casts himself as a slave, working hard and not getting what he deserves. He says, yeah, I've never disobeyed you. He says, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours has done all these things he shouldn't do. And the father says, you've always been with me. All that I have is yours. We had to celebrate. And that's the end of the parable. I mean, there's a lot there, right? When it comes to preaching this parable, I am simultaneously giddy and overwhelmed. On the one hand, for me, this is, this is probably the single most important story that Jesus taught. In my life and in my understanding of God and faith and theology, this is like a boulder dropped into a perfectly still pond, right? The implications of this story feel like they ripple out endlessly for me. If you told me I could only take one story that Jesus taught to try and explain to a group of people what I believe about who God is and how God works and what faith is, I would choose this. Unfortunately for that audience, I could easily preach 10 sermons for this. They'd be there a while. But this is the story I would choose. On the other hand, 
Uh, you have all heard it a bunch of times. You've heard it from me a bunch of times if you've been here for very long. And there's so much going on here when there's so much to choose from, how do we decide what to talk about and how do we talk about it in a way that never allows us to get too comfortable with the story where we miss the beauty, the disturbing beauty of the story. In a way, this parable, if we really read it, if we really take it in, this parable never stops comforting those of us who feel lost and never stops disturbing those of us that believe we have it all figured out. And that's what it's supposed to do. But you have to pick a lane. And so tonight, I want to draw that lens back. I want to get as wide an angle as we can. I want to get to this 10,000 foot view of this parable. And I want to look at the world that Jesus is creating here. It is a world, it's a kingdom held together by one guiding principle. And consequently, everything and everyone in this story is defined by their relationship to that one principle. And that one thing is grace. Grace. In the world of this story, people can be divided based on whether they are choosing to live in grace or not. Are they choosing to exist with unmerited uh, favor or not? Now, I was always brought up to think about this story as a choice before me, a contrast between two types of kids, and I get to choose which one I'm going to be. Right? Whenever I heard this growing up, we always talked about that younger brother, the prodigal son. That's what this story was. There was a younger brother. He wastes his life on wine and women and the things of this world. And so you have that choice. Or there are the faithful people who do not live in such hedonistic lives like this prodigal son. Right? And we would talk about how loving God is and how God would always forgive us. And that, and that is true. But it was mostly a warning about not becoming the younger son. That's kind of the point of the story when I was growing up. Truth be told, I don't remember ever hearing a sermon that included the older brother the entire time I grew up. And when I started reading scripture and trying to study it for myself, I was a bit surprised to read the second half. And I was even more surprised as I began to think about it to see that at the end of the story, the warning seems to be for the good son, not the bad one. Right? The good son is the one at the end who's missing the party. He's the one where the, journey, uh, the jury is still out by the end of the story. But honestly, I don't think this parable is intended to get you to choose between which brother are you going to be. In fact, I would argue that both those brothers are a lot more alike than we tend to think. Yes, they've made very different choices. But if you think about it, both brothers have taken for granted the richness of their own home. The beauty of living in their father's house, the beauty and the uh, importance of their father's love, both have taken that for granted. The younger one, let's pretend like you're dead, and he leaves like it doesn't matter and finds out what it's like off the reservation, right? And then the older one calls himself a slave and thinks he's working all day and not getting what he deserves and won't go into his father's house. Both take for granted the richness of their father's home. Both brothers functionally act like the father is not even there, like he's dead. Give me my inheritance now or get mad at the way my dad is spending his money because that's really kind of my money. No, it's not. They both functionally act like the father is dead. And both brothers believe that their father's love and acceptance is based on their merit. They think they have to earn it. 
Now the younger brother no longer believes they deserve the father's love, no longer believes they deserve to be called the father's son, and the other is certain of how much he deserves it. But both are working on an earned love world. They're both working on this idea of earned affection. Sometimes missing grace results in unrelenting shame, and sometimes missing grace results in an unquestioning self-righteousness. I've been to both of those places. But they both have the same root problem, a lack of grace. The contrast in the story is not between the older brother and the younger brother. The contrast in the story is between those who can abide in grace and those who cannot. And and I've already mentioned it a little bit before, but perhaps the thing we most miss about the original context of the story, the thing that would have had people scratching their heads the most and maybe the most offended is how absurd the father is. The father is embarrassing by any reasonable standard of his time. He gives the youngest son everything he asks for. Even though the request itself dishonored him and is just stupid. It's a dumb request. Of course you don't say yes to that. When his son comes back to the house and he sees him, he runs to him. When he runs to him, he throws his arms around him, doesn't even let him get his speech out of his mouth. He doesn't let him confess anything. He doesn't let him come clean about anything. He doesn't let him do any of that. He doesn't let him learn his lesson in front of him or any of those things. He just throws his arms around him and kisses him. As he goes and he throws his arm around him, he makes himself unclean instead of letting his son purify himself before he comes in. Then he throws a party for the son who treated him so poorly and hasn't even confessed to it yet. And then when the older son won't come in, won't come to the party that the father has thrown and the father has decided it should happen and the older son says no to it, he goes outside and pleads with the older son who's not honoring his wishes and is dishonoring him as a father. Every one of these activities would be unthinkable at the time, let alone all of them together. This father is foolish. This father is highly questionable. What is he thinking All of this shameful and humiliating behavior makes little sense in a world of merit, in a world of honor, in a world of justice. This father is a pushover. He is embarrassingly patient and soft on the two sons, both of whom need a stern word. I can't we think we can all agree with that, no matter how they act. And the father just doesn't adjust. He doesn't change. There's no shadow of change within him. He doesn't adapt his posture to more effectively run the household or to teach these boys a lesson. This father does not make sense in a world of merit and honor and justice. This father exists exclusively in a world of grace. And so I don't think this parable is a morality lesson about being a good kid and and not going and doing bad things. Although certainly... Don't waste your life on stuff that doesn't matter. It's better in the house. But I don't think this story is a morality lesson. No, this story is establishing that there is one place and one place only where we can truly meet God, and that is in the world of grace. We either meet God in the realm of unmerited love and favor, or we don't meet the God of Christ. 
There is no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no qualifiers and there's no exceptions. It's always only grace. That's where God can be found. And keep in mind that these two sons cover both ends of the human spectrum. And I think that's really what their role is in this story. They're supposed to represent the both extremes, right? They represent us all. There's one who does, quote unquote, does everything correctly. And then there's one who literally is 0%. Wastes 100% of what they're given, right? So there's the 100% and there's the 0%. None of you fall outside those two poles. And the only place that either one of them, on both ends of the spectrum, the only place that either one of them can encounter their father is in the world of grace. The younger brother must set aside his own shame, his own failure, his own desire to earn back the father's favor. He must accept being embraced while filthy and empty-handed and smelling of swine and live in the world of grace. The older brother must come to terms with sharing the same house with the one he likes the least and must choose to live in a world of grace. The older brother must let go of how good it feels to know you are right and remember the fact that it all belongs to the father anyways and live in a world of grace. The older brother must learn how to celebrate absurd parties. He must learn how to celebrate the reconciliation and redemption of a brother like it is his own reconciliation and redemption. He must learn to live in a world of grace or he doesn't get to be with the father. Both commune with their father or miss their father based on their acceptance of grace alone. And I think that's the lesson here. We have to live in the world of grace, however good or bad that might feel at the moment. This has obvious implications for all of us as individuals, but also for us as a community, right? Do we exist in grace? Or do we miss God's party? This is not something we can step half into or dip our toes into, according to this parable. It all rides on this. And far too often, church communities are paternalistic in all the ways that we believe uh, make for good parents and the way we should act and interact with people. We're embarrassed by and judgmental of communities that demand too little of its parishioners, right? We embrace tough love approach and, and it leads to like condemnation and a focus on truth told in love, which is often more opinion yelled self-righteously in my experience. And all those things are very, very rarely ever actually coupled with the embarrassing grace of Christ. It seems to me that even a church that can be right can often miss the party. I'll be honest, and I, one of my biggest prayers is that this is never said about us. I hope we never forget that God is only ever met in grace. I hope we are embarrassing to those who have it together all the time. I hope we are known for throwing parties for the wrong kind of people. I hope that we can own our own failures and hold our successes loosely, all while always ending up back in the Father's house celebrating the grace that got us all there. I hope we always run the risk of being taken advantage of. 
I hope we make respectable heads shake. I hope we are a community fully immersed in and operating from grace because that is the only world in which God can be found, or rather where we can be found. We don't get to do this without grace. Any expression of faith that neglects grace is standing outside of the house. The house that was built for us and for every brother and sister that we may or may not want to be seen with. It is always only about grace. It's about grace and the great party it throws. The party for everyone, for anyone, no matter what they've been going through, no matter what has gone on in their lives, good, bad, ugly, you're the 100% or you're the 0% or you're like most of us somewhere in between, Ask us each day and we'll give you a different number. Everyone is invited as long as they can tolerate the grace that brought them there. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful uh, for your grace. For the fact that your love for us has nothing to do with our performance, that your love is without condition, that there's nothing we can do right now to make you love us any more or any less than you already do. And God, that means some of us need to let go of our shame. Let go of that story we have told ourselves that we don't deserve it, we're not allowed to be here, God can't love us as we are. Lord, to humble ourselves in the midst of our shame and accept your love and your grace. And Lord, some of us need to get over ourselves. Stop looking around the room and comparing ourselves. Stop measuring our lives and deciding that we've done well, that we get what we deserve. Lord, those of us that so quickly forget that you have loved us always and always will, that everything you have is already ours. God, may we meet you in grace so that we don't miss you altogether. We love you and we ask all things in your name. Amen.